evidence and answers. We have all heard excuses why people don't believe in a creator. For some, it's just a matter of the fact that they can't see God physically with their eyes. For others, God is just an excuse. So what do we do in sharing how we trust in God? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, we will listen to Message 5, taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. The theme was Demolishing Strongholds of Unbelief. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Greg Kokel presents part one of Bad Arguments Against Religion. Now, I said something, maybe it was last night when I talked, that I gave people a start at first, and it always does, and I saw it in your eyes, but then you began to understand it as I explained it a little bit. When I said there are a lot of ways that you can prove Christianity false, huh? And then when I explained, like, if God doesn't exist, we're out of luck, right? If Jesus wasn't who we claim to be, then we're dead in the water. There is no soul, forget about heaven and hell, and things like that. Paul himself said, if the resurrection did not happen, and we believe contrary to fact in the resurrection, we are of most men to be pitied. I mean, I don't know if you knew that was in 1 Corinthians 15. People should feel sorry for us if we are not believing accurately about the vital things in Christianity, particularly the resurrection, okay? Now, I actually think that all of those are noble ways to attack Christianity. I don't think that a person is necessarily mean-spirited when he tries to argue there is no God. Maybe he's convinced that there isn't, and therefore our view has to be true. I think these are ways of going after our view at the heart and core of our understanding of reality. However, at the same time, I think that there are other kinds of arguments that people use to challenge our views that are not noble. And I don't mean that they're not mean. I don't mean they're, I mean they're not, they're not intellectually noble. That is, they sound good to the ear, but they turn out to be bad arguments against religion. They are the kinds of things that people feel comfortable you know, adopting, I almost said hiding behind, but that's not very charitable. I think that in some ways they just feel, oh yeah, that's okay. Now I don't have to take this other stuff seriously because of this other challenge that sounds to their ears like a reasonable and good challenge. And like I said, I I call these things bad arguments against religion because I think they're misguided. I think when people think a little bit more about these concerns, they realize, hey, well, this isn't going to work. And in one case, at least, I think it's based on a misunderstanding that not only non-Christians have, but Christians have as well. And so I often give this talk to non-Christians. I give this at Purdue University. And what I said to them is, and the way I, the way I presented this, is I said, you know, you want to go after Christianity. I understand that. That's all right. It's, you know, may the best idea win. That's fine. Okay. And As it turns out, all those other ways that I said were noble ways are ways in which Christianity is getting a full court press right now. Now, I think we can rise to the occasion. I'm not concerned about dealing with those issues. But I tell the audience, I said, I I just want to warn you in advance, if you're going to take some of these other approaches, this is not going to work for you. And if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't go this way. 
and then I explain to them, I want to explain how some of these things work so that you don't, you know, embarrass yourself by using a bad argument against religion. Let me give you an example of this. Now, Standard Reasons are almost 24 years old, and when we were fairly new, our first year or two, there was a uh, gal who was volunteering for us, and she actually worked in a law firm. And she told me that all the lawyers in there were atheists, and they actually didn't take her seriously because she was a Christian. And one of the attorneys said, I don't believe in, in Christianity because I don't believe in the existence of a soul. Okay, well, I get that. But then he said, and the reason I don't believe in the existence of the soul, remember that second question, now how did you come to that conclusion? The reason I don't believe in the existence of the soul is because there's no scientific evidence for it. Well, see, now he's just made a big mistake. And some of you may see it, some of you won't. But she's asking me for advice. I said, you go back to your attorney friend and you have this discussion. And you point out to him that it's surprising that he is rejecting Christianity because there's no scientific evidence for the soul. Because likely the next day he's going to go before a jury and he is going to argue that a defendant had a thing called a motive that is part of the evidence against him in this case. And can you imagine the defense attorney saying, uh, Counselor, you said my client had this thing called a, what was that, a motive? Can you please produce that for us? Do you have some scientific evidence? I mean, can you bring it up here and set it on the table here? We'll label it Exhibit A if these motives actually exist. What kind of scientific evidence do you have, Counselor, for the existence of a motive? Now, of course, you may not have thought about this before, but the fact is, motives are not physical. They don't extend in space. They don't respond to laws of physics and chemistry. And they are not the kinds of things that science can get at. But do you understand that a, a huge part of this attorney's role professionally entails, actually, I said a huge part, it turns out that everything the attorney deals with is not physical. Motives aren't physical. Guilt and innocence are not physical. Laws are not physical. Contracts are not physical. You could put it on a physical thing, a piece of paper, and you could put it on a computer. Or you can just say the contract out loud. That one thing can be in three different places in three different forms. Because the thing itself, behind it, represented in those forms, is not physical. Nothing about the attorney's enterprise is physical. So how is it that he is just going to flippantly dismiss Christianity because of it, the role of the soul in Christianity, and there's no physical scientific evidence for such a thing? Well, if that's your rule, then to operate according to your own rules, you're out of business. Do you see the point here? Okay, so what was he doing? He was really using a bad argument against Christianity. To argue that the soul doesn't exist, that's a legitimate way to go. That's noble. But to say that it doesn't exist because there's no scientific evidence for, for that, well, this is a problem. And if you follow that rule, he's out of business. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. And the, the reason I want to go through some of these, I probably have time for three or four. For one, I want you to get a sense for individual things. That is, I want you to see how I respond to these individual challenges. But if I go through a few of these bad arguments, maybe you'll kind of pick up a little rhythm about it. You'll see how these 
things kind of work and maybe how you might be able to disarm some other things that are similar to it. I also want you to see a larger principle. And the larger principle is that it's axiomatic that some of the most intelligent people in the world, and I mean intelligent, bright people, doctors, lawyers, profession, professionals of all sort, academics, PhDs, intelligent people make foolish mistakes in thinking when it comes to spiritual things. Let me just say it again. Intelligent people make foolish mistakes in thinking when it comes to spiritual things. Just like the attorney did in this illustration that I offered to you. So I want you to uh, consider a couple of things, and I want to start with a common way people try to undermine the force of Jesus' claims, all right? But let me lead into it with an illustration. Let's just say you're having a conversation with a friend of yours. You say, you know, I was out there in Manoa. That's a place around here somewhere, isn't it, Manoa? That's where, that's where the mist is, right? The Manoa mist, right? And, you know, I thought I... I thought I saw a unicorn. And your friend says, are you sure? Yeah, it was like in the evening. Well, it was twilight, you know. Sometimes you can't see very clearly in twilight. You can make a mistake. Yeah, I know that, but I was looking very carefully, and I had my glasses on. And I had my glasses on. So I think I, I, think I saw that. And you're back and forth about whether you saw the unicorn or not. And then the third person comes in and says, wait a minute, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? This is ridiculous. Unicorns do not exist. Now, can you see now how that person coming in, that puts an end to the discussion, all right? Well, this, I think, is the strategy of this first bad argument uh, against religion, and that is that people argue about what religion is true, or I should say they used to argue about that because there was a different sensibility about those things than there is now. They used to discuss this, and atheists will still talk about this because they they understand the nature of truth like we do. There are true things and there are false things, okay? So it used to be like, well, my religion is true. And somebody said, no, yours is false and mine is true. And a third person, no, you're both wrong. Mine is true, okay? And then somebody comes along and says, there is no truth. You guys are wasting your time arguing about whose view is true because there is none of that truth stuff. It's just a matter of personal opinion, and that's all you can do. Now, this has a name, this point of view. It's called postmodernism, and it's the idea that there, there's nothing we can know to be true in the ordinary sense of the word, what the world is really like. All we know is what our communities, our linguistic communities, they say, tell each other what is true. And that's it. This is, we believe this, you believe that, they believe that, and that's all you can say. You can never say... Our view is true because there is no truth. And by the way, you can see how that's going to undermine Christianity. I mean, if it turns out there is none of that true stuff, then what do we make of Jesus' statement that he is the truth? No way. You're out of business. So you see that the strategy, and it's really, it's really quite powerful to persuade people, especially in a place, the most unlikely place of all. Where would be the most unlikely place for you to hear the claim that there is no truth. The university. But that's where you hear it. In other words, you pay all this money, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, to send your kids off to the university, and there they learn that there's nothing to learn. There's no truth. To which you're thinking, I want my money back. 
okay? Now, I just want to say something about this view, okay? Because it is almost a knee-jerk reaction. We did a, to say this, you, you bring things up, no, there is no truth. In fact, the relativism book in the back, a lot of you got that, there's actually a relativism training tool for, for, for groups. And what we did in this is we went on campus and we just interviewed people and time after time after time, there is no truth, there is no truth, there is no truth, there is no truth on the campus, okay? Now here's my question. How am I supposed to take that? I think the person who says that there is no truth wants me to take his point seriously, right? He wants me to believe him. But what is it that he desires me to believe? He desires me to believe that his claim is accurate, that he's telling me the way it is, that his claim is, in short, true. But this is precisely the thing that I can't do. I can't say, oh, you're right. I, I think that point is a true one. Now, what am I supposed to do? Do you see the problem there? How long did it take me to get to that point? 45 seconds, and you see, this isn't going to work. There is no truth. Really, is that true? Now, that sounds like a word trick to somebody. It's not a trick. It's straightforward. But I actually had a debate on this is issue at Chapman University in Southern California with a professor, Dr. Philosophy, uh, Marv Meyer. Now, Marv Meyer is a really smart guy, and he's a really nice guy, too. And he's also a member of the Jesus Seminar. Some of you know who that is. That's a liberal theological group. And uh, he's a, a specialist in the Gnostic Gospels. My, my own copy of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas is Marv Meyer's translation. And, you know, I'm going to debate against him, and I'm thinking, I'm debating that there is truth, and he's debating that there's no truth, and I could say, is that true? And that's the end of the debate. I must be missing something. I, okay, I don't want to go in and get blindsided. So I call up my, my mentor at the time, J.P. Moreland, philosopher, and I said, Jay, I'm going to debate Marv Meyer at Chapman, and it seemed to me that this is easy, but it must not be easy. It must be something. I'm missing something. So help me out here. Professor Moreland, he said, no, it's that easy. It's self-refuting. When you say there is no truth, they think the claim is true, that there is no truth. You see the problem. Okay. So this was my strategy when I went in the debate. This is all I was going to do is I was just going to keep hammering that same point. And in fact, when I started the debate, I, I, I made this point, you know, Somebody can say, is that true? That's no truth. Okay. But this went right over their heads because they're, you know, they're college kids, so they don't get this stuff. My 12-year-old, she gets it, right? You pay a lot of money, send your kids to college, they get stupid. So they're looking at me. So I got to think of a way of explaining this. And I, I know that sounds a little severe, but it's, it's actually kind of true. They come believing a, back believing a bunch of nonsense for which there's no good support for, but they really got a big attitude about it. So anyway. Uh, they're not able to think these things through. So I said, look, at you know, I used to work in, uh, in Southern California. It used to really be really smoggy. It's not so bad anymore. But 25 years ago, it was really bad. 30 years ago, it was really bad. And in, in fact, in the Inland Empire, like Riverside, where the wind blows from the ocean, you know, from Makai to Mauka kind of thing, you know, that direction, that's where all the smog goes. So I was living on the coast, and uh, we produced the smog, and somebody else got to suck that up, you know, in the in Inland Empire. But one summer, I was out there with a buddy of mine, and we were working carpentry, and the smog was really bad, and it was killing us. And he's coughing, and he's sputtering, and our throats are burning. And he said, man, I can't take this anymore. This smog is killing me. i got to take a break. I'm going to go out back and have a smoke. <laughs> the true story. True story. 
And he needed blithely, like he didn't understand the inherent contradiction built in. I said, this is the same thing when you say that there is no truth. In fact, I told the audience, I said, look at it. Debates are certain kinds of things, right? It's when two people come together and they talk back and forth, giving reasons for their view, and each person is trying to make the point that the other person's view is false and their view is true, right? That's what a debate is. So when Marv Meyer just shows up at the debate, I already win. Because implicit in a debate is the idea that he thinks his, his view is true. And so on and on I go, I keep playing the same theme over and over and over again. Um, you know, Aristotle is wrong, Derrida is right, Marv Meyer is saying. Kokel is wrong, Marv Meyer is right. You know, his view is true, mine is false. I mean, this is essentially the way debates work. And so I just continued the debate that way. And at the end of the debate, here's how I ended. I had the last word, kind of, and I said, okay, you guys are going to vote in just a moment on who you thought won the debate. And some of you are going to vote for Dr. Meyer, and that's great. He did a great job, you know. And I'm glad if you do. I just want you to be aware of what you'll be saying when you strike your ballot box for Dr. Meyer. You'll be saying that, in your opinion, Dr. Meyer convinced you that his view was true, and Mr. Kokel's view was false, and therefore every vote for Dr. Meyer is a vote for the resolve, which I was defending, thank you very much, I said. <laughs> and they all laughed like you did, because they got it. In the final tally, Marv Meyer, on his campus in front of his students, in the student union packed to the walls, Marv Meyer got one vote. Somebody wasn't listening. Now, there are two other people that wrote a lot of gobbledygook, uh, postmodern gobbledygook around the box there. They didn't want to check either box, you know. But I just want you to know, it wasn't because I was really clever. That wasn't, that's not my point. It's because he was arguing an impossible situation to argue that there is no truth. That is a bad argument against religion. It's not just a bad argument. It's also dangerous. It's like convincing somebody that there's no such things as germs and disease before inviting you to dine in a dump. If you're convinced there's no truth, there's nothing to protect you from being destroyed, destroyed by lies, and there are lies, and they do destroy. First bad argument. Now, this first mistake leads to another error, and that is, if people are convinced that there is no truth, especially no truth in the area of religious claims, then there cannot be, even in principle, any evidence in favor of religious claims, okay? And so then what, do, pardon me, then what do we make of people who make the claim that religious things are true? Well, those things must be based on faith. And here, they mean the leap of variety, okay? Oh, you nice people, a quaint, you have faith. Well, I don't have faith, but you have faith. Good for you. I'm so glad to hear that. And what they're thinking in their mind is what faith is, is a kind of religious wishful thinking that makes us feel good, even though we don't have any reason for it, okay? I was in Normandy in 2002. Actually, I was in Strasbourg doing some teaching there. I took some time off, and I went to the coast, to Normandy, and I was there for the D-Day, you know, all the stuff. And I really loved that stuff. I'd read the books about it. And I just wanted to get my feet in the sand right there and imagine, you know, being there 50 years ago. Well, I had lunch there at a little cafe, and there was a man sitting there on the table there at a table next to me with his wife and two teenage children. 
He's from England, got in a small conversation with him. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm lecturing at the university over in Strasbourg and religious issues. And, and he said, oh, religion, that takes faith, which is right after fashion. And then he pointed to his wife and says, she's got it, we don't. And as he talked, it was clear that in his mind, faith was the ability to believe stupid things and feel good about it. You know, she's got it, we don't. You know, one of those kind of uncomfortable uncom circumstances. I actually corresponded with a little, her a little after that, but tried to encourage her. But, uh, but see, I, I said, it's interesting you say that because this is one of the things I was just lecturing about in Strasbourg, this misunderstanding. You see, not only non-Christians, but Christians have the misunderstanding that faith is a leap. And I mentioned yesterday, I don't use the word faith anymore in my conversations because it's misunderstood. It's corrupted for fruitful use now. It's not that the concept is bad, it's the word is not good. And now I use a different word. I use the word trust because that's the English word that now captures the biblical meaning, active trust. Well, when you say trust, you know trust is the kind of thing that deserves to be, needs to be earned, right? And this is precisely the way the New Testament positions the notion of pisteo or belief trust. In fact, if you think about the Gospel of John, chapter 20, John actually tells us why he wrote the whole gospel. And here's what he says in chapter 20, the very end of the chapter. He says, many other signs and wonders. You know what those are, right? Miracles. There are a lot of miracles Jesus did. In fact, so many of them, he says later, that the works of Jesus wouldn't be able to fill all the books in the whole world. But these I have included in this text, the miracles, in order that you shall believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Messiah, and in believing have life in his name. In other words, I'm giving, Gospel of John, here's what the Gospel of John, I'm letting you know why I wrote it. I wrote it to give you evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if it turns out that faith is a leap with no evidence, then why is it that John writes a whole gospel to give evidence for Jesus? Why is it the book of Acts starts out that Jesus appeared to many with many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days? Now, some Christians actually think that faith and knowledge are opposites. So when we give conferences like this and we talk about reasons why you should take Christianity seriously, some Christians will say, well, look at if you've got all this evidence, then where is room for faith? Notice how they put faith over here and they put knowledge over here. The more you know, the less you have room for faith. The less you know, the more faith on their understanding. But this is all topsy-turvy. This is not the New Testament view, okay? So I'm going to give you really quickly a couple, of, uh, maybe three examples to show you that the biblical approach is first you have knowledge, you have evidence that leads to knowledge. Let me put it that way. You have evidence that leads to knowledge, and because of the nature of the knowledge, we are encouraged to put our trust in that which we have good reason to know is true. Because that's the order. Evidence, knowledge, faith, biblical trust, okay? And I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 10 or so, and what's happening in Exodus chapter 10? The Exodus, yeah, right. It was buried in Grant's tomb, you know, one of those things. The Exodus. This is actually Exodus 4 is where it starts. This is where God encounters Moses in the burning bush, and he tells Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses has got a question, and his question is, why should Pharaoh believe me? Why should the Jews believe me, the Hebrew children? Why should they believe me? 
okay? And so God says, what do you got in your hand? Staff, throw it down. He throws it down, it becomes a snake. Pick it up, he picks it up, it becomes a staff again. You, you show that to Pharaoh. And while you're at it, let's see, we're going to get some frogs coming out of the, the Nile, and we get them jumping in their shorts and their pajamas and stuff like that. It'll get their attention. We'll uh, turn that Nile into blood. We'll get the hail coming down. We'll get the boils on the thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll do all of this stuff. Now, why does he say he's going to do all of the ten plagues? And I'll tell you why. It says it in the text. Listen to the words. So that they shall know that there is a God in Israel. And he doesn't say it once, he doesn't say it twice, he doesn't say it five times, he says it ten different times in the text. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, Pat's books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Hey, 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 hey,